Kevin Biggio was born into baseball. His dad is a Hall of Famer. A fifth-round pick out of Notre Dame in 2016, Biggio's career took off two years ago in AA when he was named MVP of the league. A year later, he was in the big leagues, and now in 2020, his stock continues to rise. Biggio drives the ball well to the opposite field, and it is gone! Kevin Vigio with number six on the season and a little more breathing room. It is seven to one. He's viewed as a young leader on the team and also as a big part of the future. It was a lot of fun to catch up with Kevin Vigio. I spoke to him on Jackie Robinson Day on Friday, the day after the Blue Jays game was postponed as they were getting ready to start up a series with the Baltimore Orioles. I'm Dan Schulman, and this is A Swing and a Belt. Slices it down the left field line. It's a fair ball. Drury is around third, and he will come in to score. Biggio on his way to second and in there with a double as the Blue Jays take the lead. What a player. My goodness, what a player. Kevin Biggio is the second baseman and also occasionally an outfielder for the Toronto Blue Jays. He took over the leadoff spot for the Jays a few weeks ago and since then has hit over 330 with an on-base percentage over 480. He has probably been the most consistent player on the team this season and is one of the key reasons why the Jays are in the hunt for a playoff spot in 2020. Kevin, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Good. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, appreciate you coming on. So I want to talk baseball, but with everything else that's going on, and we've seen it a lot in the last few days with you guys not playing a game against the Red Sox, what can you tell us about the team meeting that you guys had and what yesterday was like for you guys? So yesterday, I mean... Let's go back two days uh, before that where, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks and all the NBA players, they didn't end up playing. And I really didn't really hear about it until I was stretching for the game on the field. And then, you know, kind of after the game going in and seeing how there was no NBA games played and there were a handful of MLB games not played. And, you know, going into the day yesterday, you know, Travis Shaw, who had played with a lot of those guys on the other side, uh, he had texted JBJ to see, you know, what his thoughts are and stuff. And he said that he wasn't going to play. And, you know, eventually later in the day, we found out that the whole team, uh, you know, kind of rallied behind him and, and supported him and also decided not to play. And for us, it was one of those things where, you know, we, we heard the news about them not wanting to play or even the possibility of not playing. And as a team, we kind of got together and, and said that, you know, we're here, we're ready to play, but we're behind JBJ and, and the Red Sox decision not to play. And, uh, and that's pretty much what happened. You know, Anthony Alford obviously was a teammate and a good friend of yours, but he was DFA'd a few days ago, so his presence wasn't there in the clubhouse, um, you know, during the last couple of days. Did you talk to Anthony about any uh, any of this stuff over the last 48 hours or so? Yeah, actually, uh, when I got to the ballpark uh, yesterday, I had um, reached out to him, and he called me, and we talked for like 20 minutes because he's, he's really heavily involved with the Players' Alliance, and I wanted to get his thoughts on you know, what they had been talking about as a group. And also, you know, I was like, if you were on this team, what would you want to see from from guys on the team and all that stuff? So he was super informative and super helpful to me. And, you know, it, it you know it helped me really guide our way to understanding and, you know, having that respect for JBJ and the Red Sox and, you know, ultimately their decision not to play. Ross Atkins talked about kind of town halls that have been held within the team. And I don't know if it's 
players only or players and coaches or if Ross is involved or even other people that we may not be aware of. Have there been, you know, some kind of group conversations about not just heading into this one game, but have there been periodic group conversations about this issue over the last few weeks? I wouldn't say weeks. You know, I think at the beginning of the season, uh, especially in summer camp, we were having a lot more of those type of conversations of, you know, what we could do as a team and and stuff like that, what it was going to look like on opening day for us. But, you know, ever since then, you know, we, we all know the importance of of social justice and, and, and all of that. And if you watch our batting practices, you know, we still have a bunch of guys wearing BLM shirts or mm-hmm. and we even made Blue Jays equality shirts. So that's always been um, at the forefront of us playing baseball. But mentally, uh, we've been, you know, really focused on the season, focused on winning and We've had some injuries. We've had guys down, but we've grinded through it, and that's when our, where our mentality has been. Jackie Robinson Day, everybody wears a number 42. Just another reminder of the importance of the lessons that everybody is learning or relearning right now. What does it mean to you when you put on a number 42 jersey for a ball game? Me personally, I'm very excited and very grateful for the opportunity to be able to wear number 42, a guy who has not only changed the game of baseball, but you know sports as a whole. So to me... I think this day couldn't come on a better day within, you know, after seeing what has been going on the past week or so. So I think Jackie Robinson Day right now, it's a good time to to really reflect on, you know, how bad it really was for a guy like Jackie and how much he's done to change the game and how many guys have followed and continue to do the work that he has laid out. So overall, I'm very excited for tonight and, uh, you know, something that I'm never going to forget. Absolutely. All right, let's transition to baseball because there's a lot of good stuff to talk about. And and if you don't mind, one of the things I'm fascinated with about you, as Buck and I do the games, we talk about it constantly, is the eye that you have at the plate. And, you know, it's second nature to you, but it's fascinating to all of us, especially in a guy who's so young. So I went back and looked at your minor league stats, and then I went back and looked at your Notre Dame stats, and then I found your high school stats, and (laughs) it looks like you've always been this guy. Like, even when you were like 12, 13 years old, were you always taking more walks than just about anybody else that you played with? I don't don't know if I can really remember that far ago, because, I mean, back then I I feel like I was just trying to hit home runs, but... (laughs) I don't know. I think it's been ingrained in me, um, you know, since I was a young kid watching the game. I think at a very young age, probably younger than most players, I feel like I was a student of the game without even really knowing it. You know, I was a diehard Astros fan. My dad was my number one guy, you know, killer bees, great teams to watch. And I was glued to the game when I was that young. I would watch the games. I would, um, you know, make sure I get my homework done and and then watch the Astros at, at seven and whatnot. So, I think just understanding the game and watching it and learning it for myself and just kind of taking that throughout the course of my career, I think that's where you see, you know, the patience and, you know, just the idea that I have when I'm up there and and what I'm really trying to accomplish each and every at bat. So were there specific things like your dad when he was spending time with you or after a game when he'd get home from a ball game? Was he telling you specific things about, you know, certain pitches, certain counts, or was it just you observing him and learning from him and other big leaguers? I think it's all from observing and learning. My dad, whenever he got the chance to come home and that night, I mean, I really was more worried about having, you know, my father there and just talking about, you know, how my day was because I had already known how his day was. And from that aspect, it was just more from observations and even, you know, my dad, you know, he brought my brother and I into the locker room a lot, especially pregame batting practice and all that. And we would hang out in the, ca- in the cage all the time. And we would just sit in the corner and, and 
be told not to talk and everything that we heard stayed stayed in the clubhouse stayed in the cage and um you know i was able to, to listen to some conversations and and just kind of put in the back of my mind and then later on in my life they they started to make sense a little bit so i think it's just being being around the game at, at the highest level when i was such a young kid and really understanding the importance of listening and and kind of taking it in slowly sounds like a pretty good childhood if you ask me <laughs> it was the best. I, I can't complain. I love yeah. it. Line drive, right center field. That's number 3,000. And he drives in a run. And he's going for second. Tavares with the throw. That's 3,000 hits for Craig Vigio. Like, my dad's a dentist, and I love him dearly. But going to the dentist's office with, with your dad is not like going to the clubhouse with your dad. Like, it's just not even close. But it sounds yeah. like a very cool way to grow up. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know if you can answer it. But, again, when we're doing the games... It feels to me like on breaking balls, whether it's curveballs or sliders, you just pick up spin so early. Like it's one thing to take a fastball that's like a non-competitive pitch out of the pitcher's hand, but there are so many strike-to-ball breaking balls that you don't even flinch at, and they only miss by a couple of inches. How do you do that, I guess, is my question. And again, I don't know if you can answer it, but how do you take so many close pitches that look like strikes, but they're not? Yeah, I mean, especially with less than two strikes, I'm, I'm really hunting a pitch that I can do some damage on. And if, you know, I don't get it or if it's not a pitch I'm looking at, I really won't even bother even thinking about swinging at it unless it's a, you know, it's a hanger or a mistake pitch. So early on in the count, I, I'm really hunting, you know, maybe one side of the plate or, or a single pitch. And if it's not there, then, I, then I'm taking it. And then, you know, two strikes. I mean, these guys are nasty. And, you know, half the time they don't even throw a strike to get you out. And, and I think the more that I can make the pitcher work, the more mistakes he's going to end up, you know, letting up to me or, or the guy behind me or whatnot. So it's really interesting. You know, when I was in high A, uh, my pitching coach, Mark Riggins, we were in a big funk offensively and defensively. And John Schneider, our manager at the time, he thought it'd be a good idea if the hitting coach would talk to the pitchers and the pitching coach would talk to the hitters just from the aspect of what work they're trying to do to each other. So Riggins was, uh, he was talking about, how pitchers don't even have to work sometimes like where we help them out so much where they can throw a pitch off the plate and we roll over and we just gave them an out so that really stuck out to me where the more I can make the pitcher get me out versus me get myself out the more successful that I'm going to be and and kind of from that point on it stuck out in my mind you know to make that guy get me out versus you know get myself out early on in the count and ball four Biggio on base for the third time yeah, that's why you don't put a hit and run on and force him to swing. He's got such a good eye. He's got 20 walks now. Team-wise, you guys were 7-11 and 11 after 18 games, and everybody knows inside and outside that there were a few games probably that could have been won that you guys didn't win. So it, it felt like even though you were 7-11, and 11, everybody on the team was still saying, hey, we're better than people think we are. We got this. So it did, did the confidence of the group ever waver even when you guys were just trying to get back to the 500 mark no i wouldn't say the confidence wavered i just think that we had to focus because we were losing games it was one run we were battling one run in all those Mm -hmm. games where you know we were finding a way to to lose that one run so i personally think it was probably a mix of you know not having that spring training where you're where you're getting all those things sharpened up and you know you got summer camp facing each other and I know we obviously weren't the only team in this situation, but, uh, you know, the first couple of weeks it was still almost spring training mode to a lot of us. And I think um, we just really needed to focus, especially late in the games and 
and you know make sure we we're making the routine plays. So obviously a couple tough ones early on in the season, but I think um, you know after the season got going a little bit, guys got more confidence in their uh, individual games, and you know we were able to to start putting it together. And now it's just going to keep it going. Did that one game when you came back against Philadelphia, second game of the doubleheader, or maybe even the last game of the series you just had against the Rays a few days ago, is there one moment or one game that kind of stands out to you so far this season? Yeah, I, I think it's the second game of that Phillies doubleheader. I mean, that game was absolutely nuts. I mean, we, we came off of a, a pretty big win that first game, and then you know you go down seven runs in the first inning. It's uh, it's pretty disheartening, and and you know I think any other team, especially in a seven inning game, can look at that as in you know we can split the series and still look at it as a positive. But we just kept you know putting good at bats together, especially in that in that sixth inning, man. I mean, I thought that was just incredible. Where you know, especially with two outs, we had guys you know like Danny Jansen rolling over a ball to shortstop, and you know he busts his butt down the line, and he was able to force a bad throw from Kingery that. Without that, that wouldn't have we wouldn't have been able to to win that game. So, I mean, just to see the consistent, you know, team first at bats there in that that bottom of the sixth uh, inning is, you know, that's that's what winning's all about, and it was very encouraging to see. How did guys react when you heard that the Blue Jays had picked up Taiwan Walker? We were excited. I mean, you know, like I said earlier, we've we've had some injuries that we've had to you know work around and get through, and. You know, adding a big arm like that to our rotation is, is huge, especially with all the injuries our starting rotation has currently. So, you know, we're excited to keep it going. We're excited to add him to, to our group and, and, you know, welcome him and get him going. So, uh, so yeah, obviously a lot of excitement, but we're going to continue to do our thing. Fans are talking all the time about the playoffs already. It's only a month out and you're in the eighth spot right now and things are going pretty well. Do you guys – talk about the playoffs or is it just so understood and you're just trying to grind one game at a time you don't even really talk about it with each other i don't think we really talk about it with each other because we know there's so much left of the year to go i mean we obviously look at the expanded playoffs and you know how you know a lot of teams are going to be able to get in and and right now we'd be able to get into that last spot and it's obviously something that we know that we're fighting for that you know maybe that second spot in the al east or maybe the first spot so who knows but um we know the opportunities there so we're going to continue working hard and getting better every single day and, you know, try to put together uh, some good ball games and, you know, get some wins. So we obviously know it's there, but it's not something we really keen on too much because we know there's a lot of work to go. Right. Well, I know it's hard for you guys to feel playing in Buffalo and being in the U.S. the whole time, but you know how many fans from coast to coast there are in Canada and they're watching on TV, they're listening on radio. Uh, everybody's following you guys and excited for the way that you guys have played the last couple of weeks and for the way that you have done since you moved up to the leadoff spot uh, over the last few weeks. So keep it going. Thanks for doing this, and uh, I hope the rest of the season goes well. All right. Thank you, Dan. For a few years, Biggio was overshadowed by the likes of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, of course, who came up with more hype, higher draft picks. But Biggio excelled at double-A, excelled as a rookie last year for the Blue Jays, and has taken it to an even higher level here in 2020. You can't overlook the numbers, especially what he's done in the last three weeks since he has moved up to the leadoff spot, solid at second base, can play the outfield when they need him. He is checking off a lot of boxes right now for the Toronto Blue Jays. That'll do it for this episode of A Swing and a Bell, produced as always by Christian Ryan. We'd love you to subscribe or leave us a like or a review or connect with us any way you want to. Until next time, I'm Dan Schulman.